31. Now, Daniel ch chapter 6, uh, you know, uh, concludes the historical section of the book of Daniel. Remember that uh, uh, there are two ways to divide the book of Daniel. One is according to languages. That is, we can um, uh, take the introduction, Daniel chapter 1, and then uh, the portion that deals with the Gentile nations, Daniel chapter 2 through 7, which is written in the Aramaic language, and then uh, Daniel 8 through 12, which deals with the nation of Israel and was written in the Hebrew language. Daniel 1 is written in the Hebrew language. Daniel 2 through 7 is written in the Aramaic language, and Daniel 8 through 12 is written in the Hebrew language. So Daniel chapter 1 is an introduction. Daniel 2 through 7 deals with the Gentile nations, and Daniel chapters 8 through 12 deal with the nation of Israel. Now, that's one way to divide it. The second way to divide the book of Daniel is to divide it uh, by history and prophecy. Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 is history. Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 is prophecy. And we can divide it uh, uh, that way also. Now, we're getting a little heat in here. Now, all the men are getting, so I think what we'll do is put this down and just turn this off. Like. Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 is history. And Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 is prophecy. Now, um, uh, Daniel chapter 5 records the fall of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And in order to get the setting in this chapter, we need to get in our minds clearly what's taken place. Six o five uh, is the rise of the well, the uh, the rise of Nebuchadnezzar to power, and the Neo-Babylonian Empire from six o five to five thirty nine B.C. In October five thirty nine B.C., Babylon fell, and so this is the period of the Babylonian Empire, or according to Daniel chapter one, this is the period of the head of what? Gold, head of gold. So <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar reigned. He began reigning in 605, reigned down to about 562. And then there followed last time as we saw several rulers. We come down to about five, um, about 555, and we have a man by the name of Nabonidus that begins to reign. And, uh, and about 555, and about his son comes on by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar, the Belshazzar of chapter 5, and these two men reign up until 539, the fall of the Babylonian Empire. So that Nabonidus was the king, Belshazzar, his son, who began in 552 B.C., as we saw last week, was the co-regent, and that's why Belshazzar offered to Daniel the what place in the kingdom? Third place in the kingdom, the triumvirate. He offered him what is called uh, the place of the triumvirate. Well, that was on the night that um, Babylon fell, so that wasn't too much of an offer. And uh, then begins in 539, then begins the, uh, the second great empire of Daniel chapter 2, the Medo-Persian Empire. And that went on down to the days of Alexander the Great, let's say about 330 B.C., the Medo-Persia. Then 330 B.C. began the Greco-Macedonian Empire up until the time of the Roman Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire is represented, Daniel chapter 2, by the breast 
arms, chest, of silver. Now the three men at the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire with whom we need to be acquainted. The first one is Cyrus. Cyrus was the emperor of the whole Medo-Persian Empire. Part of the Medo-Persian Empire was the country of Babylon. And this man, Darius, was the uh, governor or the king of the uh, territory of, uh, of uh, Babylon. Cyrus was the emperor over the whole Medo-Persian Empire, which covered a, a good part, most of what's called the Fertile Crescent that runs all the way from the Persian Gulf all the way over down to Egypt. It's called the Fertile Crescent. And you know we have the Tigris and the Euphrates River. We have over here uh, Syria. This is the Mediterranean. Here is the uh, Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea greatly enlarged. And all of this is called the Fertile Crescent. And the Medo-Persian Empire encompassed all of this section. Part of it was the Babylonian Empire, the southern part, and that was the part over which <clears throat> Darius was the king. So Darius was subject to, uh, to uh, Osiris. Then the other man in this chapter is this man, Daniel. So here are the three men that take a part, play a part at the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus and uh, Darius and uh, Daniel. Cyrus is the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel's now about 80, 80, about 82, 83, 84 years of age. We began with him at about 18 years of age. And here we now have him at about 82, 83, 84 years of age. You know, for years and years and years when I read this story, uh, and I even picked up a book last night, dealt with it. You think of Daniel as a young man. You get these songs that speak of Daniel as a young man being thrown into the lion's den. I thought Daniel's about, oh, maybe 22, 24 when he is tossed into the lion's den. Daniel was over 80 when he is thrown in the lion's den. 82, 83, or 84 years of age. Uh, when Daniel was tossed into the lion's den, he had gone through all of the period of the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire. Daniel 1 is 605 B.C. Daniel 6 is 538 B.C., a year after the Babylonian Empire had fallen and the Medo-Persian Empire had come into strength. Now, uh, we read about this man. He's called in Daniel 531 Darius the Mede. Uh, he's not found too clearly by that name in secular history, and there's been a long discussion in books as to who this Daniel is. And basically, among conservatives, there are three views. I'm not going into them. I'll tell you which one I tend to, which is the right one. See? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not settling this. Uh, but uh, some men think that this is another name for Cyrus. Uh, that Cyrus, we know that some men have pseudonyms, and that Daniel, that uh, Darius is simply another name for Cyrus. There are objections to that. Some men think that this is Cyrus's son, who was named Cambyses, who came on the throne and uh, really in, uh, uh, followed Cyrus about 529 B.C., but was a co-regent with his father beginning at 538 B.C. Most men, uh, especially since the work of a man that spoke here in Memphis about six months ago, his name is John Whitcomb. John Whitcomb wrote a book on this man, Darius, and he identifies him with a man that's well known in secular history as Gubaru. And he was uh, um, um, a man that was uh, subject to Cyrus and reigned subject to Cyrus. And I think the evidence that 
Whitcomb as Marshall pretty well indicates that this man, G-U-B-A-R-U, Gubarl, is to be identified with the Dan Darius of Daniel chapter 6. Now, we know that even Daniel had two names, don't we? What was his other name? Belteshazzar. So it's not unthinkable that he would have a man, this man would have a name, a name by, uh, Darius and also Gubaro. And probably Darius of the Bible is to be identified with a Gubaro of uh, secular history. Of him, both in the Bible and this man here, we know a good deal. Uh, he was born about 600 uh, B.C. He was a very competent man, a good administrator, as is apparent. So when he came on and took over the country of Babylon, subject to Cyrus, first thing he did was uh, immediately was to organize his kingdom. And they're always interested, all kings interested in two things. Number one, to keep down any political role, uh, uh, revolt out, in the, out among the natives, in the boondocks. And they always had trouble, by the way, in Palestine with the Jews. Because the Jews, even as they are today, have always been nationalistic. And Rome always had difficulty with uh, Palestine. And um, foreign emperors and kings in those times would uh, so organize their uh, empire and so construct the administration they did two things. One is keep down revolts. Keep the natives happy, keep down revolts. And secondly, bring in the tax money. Matthew was a tax collector. Those days they farmed out taxes. They found a, an apostate Jew who was willing to serve as a tax collector and they said, you bring, let's say for example, over this territory, you bring in a million dollars, and whatever else you can collect, it's yours, and a man can get wealthy. So Darius organized his kingdom. Under himself, he selected three men, and of all things, he selected this man, Daniel. Now 80 years old, but he had a long history of serving the previous emperor as well. So he selected three men, they're called presidents or chiefs. And then under them, he selected 120 satraps, minor government officials. And these satraps were over a certain amount of territory, and part of them responsible to one chief, part of them responsible to another chief, part of them responsible to a third chief. Now, that worked so well, and all of Darius's kingdom was divided that way. When we come to the book of Esther, we find that um, the emperor also organized his kingdom, the Persian kingdom, along the same line. Persia, even in secular history, organized its kingdom, its administration along the same line, divided in what's called satrapies. And here are 120 satraps. So um, this man, Darius, organized his kingdom in that fashion. And Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, did so well. Look at verse 3. Then this Daniel, then this Daniel, after he'd been selected as one of the three presidents or chiefs in verse 2, did so well, worked so well, discharged his responsibility so well, was so loyal to the king, then this Daniel was preferred above the, the other two presidents and the state traps because an excellent spirit, an ability, an excellent spirit conveys the idea of an ability to discharge his responsibility. An excellent spirit was in him. And the king began to think about setting him over the whole realm. That is, to put perhaps another man in his place, to elevate Daniel to a, an, 
um, uh, an executive officer. Darius would be the president. Cyrus would be the chairman of the board. Darius would be the president. Daniel would be the chief executive officer. Three presidents and 120 satraps, see. And he was thinking about that. And, of course, in thinking about it, that got to be known. These other two presidents, along with some of the satraps, found out about it, got wind of the thing. And so we read in verses 6 to 4, four to, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, the second thing in our story. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Uh, is he stealing anything for the money? Is he getting any political payoffs? Uh, is he uh, pardoning anybody? See, what is he getting out of all this? Let's see if we can find something. Is he loyal to the king? And they searched and searched and searched and uh, sent some uh, uh, fifth column of men around under his administration to see if they could locate anything. Uh, they got a couple of uh, uh, investigative news reporters working real hard. And lo and behold, what they come up with? They could find no occasion nor fault for as much as Daniel was faithful. That is faithful to the king, faithful in his work. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. So these men got back together again, and they were probably not all the satraps, but the ones that were located near the city of Babylon, along with uh, the two other presidents, the chiefs. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these chiefs and princes, the chiefs and satraps, assembled together to the king and said unto him, King Darius, live forever. I always like that. You know, everybody calls it the king. Oh, king, live forever. Now, most of them, they, you really could say it. Oh, king, we wish you had dropped dead today. You know, but that's the way they always introduced it. Oh, king, live forever. All the chiefs, now there's a lie right there, all because Daniel wasn't present, present only two-thirds of them. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains, these are other officials, have consulted together, uh, have really conspired together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, except of you as a representative of the deity, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, do two things. First of all, establish this decree. But so that uh, it can't be changed, nobody can change it. And as they were saying to themselves, you can't even change it when you find out who it's aimed at. See, he didn't know who it was aimed at. When you find out, we want you to write it down so that when you find out who it's aimed at, you won't be able to change it. So not only establish the decree, but put it in writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. And secular history confirms that. When a king established a thing by law, by writing, and put his seal to it, it couldn't be changed. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. So the plotters tried to find something wrong in Daniel, and as you know from the story, they couldn't. He was loyal, he worked hard, he was honest, uh, he fulfilled all his obligations as an administrator, so they knew that the only place they could uh, trip him up was uh, in his uh, religion, in his relationship to God. You know, I was reading this the other night, and this really impressed me. Matter of fact, the heart of the story, as far as Daniel's concerned, is right there, the end of verse 5. 
Uh, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And then they knew, they knew exactly. How long did they ask for? 30 days. Why did they, why did they, uh, uh, why did they uh, ask him to put it that way? Why didn't they ask him to sign a decree that no man could travel over 100 miles outside of Babylon without the consent of the king? Why didn't they say that no man could take off Saturday without the consent of the king? They could have thought of a thousand other ways, a thousand other ways to establish the decree and trip some man, but they selected one. Let him not worship any god or any man except you as the representative of the deity. He can't pray to anybody. Why did they do it? Because they knew exactly what Daniel did every day. And they knew Daniel was so committed to his king that even at the loss of his life, he was not going to uh, disavow his commitment to God. Boy, this is a tremendous testimony to Daniel. In fact, it tells me three things about Daniel. First of all, it tells me that Daniel was no secret believer. Daniel was faced with a dilemma. Uh, matter of fact, for years he'd been faced with a dilemma. Here he was a man in a pagan land, but not only a man in a pagan land, he was a, 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 a Christian official. Now, he wasn't a Christian in the New Testament sense of the word. He was a believer in God in a high administrative post among pagans who could take his life, and yet he was unafraid to fly his colors and uh, give an open witness to his God. He was no secret believer at his work. He flew his colors clearly and openly, and they knew it. All the other men knew it. They knew he prayed. They knew exactly where to go in the daytime to discover him, and to find him guilty of this trumped-up charge. Uh, Daniel flew his colors. He was an open believer in Jesus Christ. I always think in this connection of that story of the soldier that went off to war, and about 18 years, the young boy went off to war, and, and after about a year, boot camp and so on, down the line, came back home after about a year. Dad said to him, son, he said, how'd you get along? He said, famously. Well, he said, what do you mean? Well, Daddy said, I was in there for a year, and they never found out I was a Christian. <laughs> well, not with Daniel. Daniel flew his colors. He was unashamed. Nobody had to ask him. They didn't have to knock at his door and take any survey to find out if Daniel was a Christian. Daniel witnessed for his God openly by his life and by his word. Second thing. Daniel was uncompromising in his convictions. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that these men are going to find something about Daniel in which there might be a chance that Daniel would slip out of it? Do you think they're going to bring up some charge uh, against Daniel? Do you think they're going to bring up something to get the king to do something? Uh, in which they suspect that Daniel might not carry through? No, they're going to drum up something against Daniel regarding which they are sure 
There's not going to be a doubt in a thousand that they're not going to be able to charge it with. You see, what this witnesses to is the fact that these pagan, unscrupulous unbelievers knew without any shadow of doubt that Daniel was so committed to his God that he wasn't going to give up what he had been doing year after year even at the sacrifice of his life. They knew that Daniel was uncompromising. That speaks volumes of Daniel's influence and testimony upon these men. Here was Daniel. They said, we got to get something sure. We got to find a sure bet on this man, Daniel. We want to put him away. Now, what can we find that's a sure bet? See? What's something that he won't give up even if it costs his life? Well, you know, they scrounged around and looked and looked and looked. And the only thing they could find was his commitment to God. And when they brought this charge to the king, there was no place for second guessing here. They wanted to get something that they were at, on which they were absolutely sure. These pagans, see, knew that Daniel was so committed to his God that even if it cost his life, he was going to continue doing exactly what he did, and that is to pray to God. Let me ask you, do the men down at your business know that about your life? See, Are they as sure of you and of me as they were of Daniel? These men were sure that Daniel's, they didn't agree with it. They didn't like it. They despised it. They didn't like the God of Daniel, didn't like Daniel himself. But unintentionally, by the very thing they selected to get Daniel on by that very thing they witnessed to the commitment, the uncompromising stand that Daniel took, that even at the cost of his life, he would not stop doing what he had been doing, and that was praying to his God. Then another thing that struck me when I read this story, and this is really the secret here, Daniel's life, these three things, is that and this interesting thing that the only place they could find a fault in Daniel was in his, uh, uh, was in his, uh, uh, in his faith. He backed up his testimony in his life. They looked around. Uh, is he late to work 10 minutes? No. Does he get anything under the table? No. Does he cheat? No. Uh, does he mishandle the people who are under him? No. Well, where are we going to find a fault? Well, they searched and searched and searched. And the only place they could find a fault was in his, in his religious life, in his commitment to God. Wouldn't it be a nice thing in his uh, unhesitating obedience to God? Wouldn't that be a nice thing if a man could say about me or a man could say about you at work or say about me? Well, listen, I've looked around uh, his life and I studied and I find one major fault. What is that fault? Well, that major fault is that he is uncompromisingly obedient to God. See, wouldn't that be nice? I've looked at him. I studied his life. And he's got one major fault in his life. What is that? Why, his one major fault is that he's uncompromisingly obedient to God. That's the only fault he could find. And that'd be a nice thing, wouldn't it? A man could find a fault that way. Daniel's life rang true. What he was at 18, Daniel 1, he's still the same man in Daniel chapter 84. His life is marked by 
by steadfastness and by perseverance. So they go to the king in verses 5 and 6, 7, and 8, 9 and get the king to write this. And they trick him. They appeal to his ego. Now beginning at verse 10, they get Daniel condemned. Verses 10 through 18. They get Daniel condemned. Begin at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he discovered he wasn't there and he discovered what they had done. Uh, Daniel went down to his house and he said, well, it won't make any difference if I close the windows today and go down to the basement and pray. See? <laughs> no, he didn't do that. He wasn't ostentatious. He didn't go and say, well, now I'm going to stick my head out the window and pray that way so they'll be sure to see me. He wasn't ostentatious, but he didn't go down into the basement. He did exactly what he always did. Went to the same place at the same time, the same window, the same direction, east to Jerusalem, well, west here to Jerusalem. Looked toward Jerusalem as indicated in 2 Kings chapter 8. Did the same thing as he had done before. Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went to his house, his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down upon his knees. He kneeled upon his knees. Does a man have to kneel upon his knees to pray? Not necessarily. When I've been times when I've been real tired, I'd have to stand up and walk around, see, to keep away. So you don't have to, but I think normally it's not a bad sign because the man that often, see, the getting on the kneels, indicates that the heart is also kneeling. That's the symbol of getting on the knees. So Daniel got on his knees. It's not necessary, but Daniel got on his knees, kneeled upon his knees. That's the way Hebrew says it, kneeled upon his knees. We would just say he kneeled because we wouldn't think that he'd kneel upon his toes see, so, or kneel upon his hands, but the Hebrew has a way of adding little things like it. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day, morning, noon, and night, as the little chorus used to go. Kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed, gave thanks before his God as he did previously. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying. They knew exactly where to go. They probably got on the second floor of some house nearby and watched him. Found Daniel praying, making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spoke before the king concerning the king's decree. Now they did the same thing here they did in, in, in uh, Daniel chapter 3 psychological approach they got the king to commit himself first got the king to commit himself first and then they told him who who was guilty verse 12 they came near and spoke before the king concerning the king's degree uh, oh king have you not signed a decree well they knew that well they just wanted to get him to say it again haven't you signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days except of you O king shall be cast to the den of lions. The king answered, Yes, that thing's true. And according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which alters not. Now they put in the night. Then A answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regards not thee which was untrue, O king, nor the decree which is true that thou hast signed. Remember what the book of Acts says, Acts 5, whether it's right or not, we must obey God rather than man. He regards not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now the king liked Daniel. He had confidence in him. So the king, when he heard these words, 
was very much displeased with himself. He was displeased. He now knew that those fellows, those plotters played to his ego, and they tricked him, and they got him to sign it hastily. He knew that now, and he could kick himself for being a fool and getting tricked into that sort of thing. Then the king, when he heard these words, very much displeased with himself, set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. He probably got, uh, and I'm not saying this facetiously, he probably got his lawyers to find if there was any way he could break that irrevocable law of the Medes and the Persians, and he couldn't. Secular history witnesses to what the Bible says, that once a king had written it and signed it and issued it as a decree and put his own seal on it and had signed it, not even the king could break it. Now, the Babylonian kings could. They're the head of gold, but not the kings of Media and Persia. Once it was signed, it was irrevocable. So he got his lawyers and tried to see if there's some way they could break this contract, but he couldn't find any way to break it. Now, you came awake there, Rickle. I saw that. There's a lawyer, see? <laughs> you see what these lawyers are doing? You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> All right, and all the others. I see about three more, but he was wide awake. The others were sleeping, so that's why I got him. All right, verse 14, then the king, when he heard these words, was very much displeased with him and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down the sun to find some way to deliver him. Couldn't find it, see? Couldn't find it. Because he liked Daniel. He knew it was wrong. He knew Daniel was not guilty, and he liked him. But he had acted in haste, they had played to his ego. He had signed the decree. It wasn't any way he could revoke it. Then these men assembled the king and said in the king, and they, boy, they really put the knife in. They're twisting now, you see. No king that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king established may be changed. So the king had to sentence Daniel. What anything he could do? The king demanded. They brought Daniel and cast him down into the den of lions. Now the king spoke and said unto Daniel, I think he said it, didn't say it facetiously. I think he said it honestly. The conviction, though he's not a believer. Thy God, whom thou servest continually. That's a good testimony. What's the important word there? Continually. Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it as they sealed the tomb of Jesus. Pilate did. The king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his Lord's. <laughs> that is, those cheats, those, they both signed it so that neither one could break it. He didn't trust them, and they didn't trust him. They knew he liked Daniel, you see, and they knew if he signed it, and only, only he signed it, that he could break it, release Daniel, and then seal it once again. So they countersigned this check. That's why checks have to be countersigned. See, it goes back to Daniel chapter 5. They countersigned this thing. And seeing it with his signet, signet of his Lord, the purpose not by be damaged concerning Daniel. Now, what's the lion's den? Probably a subterranean cave, from what the archaeologists tell us. Probably it's a cave in the side of the hill, and uh, it had a, a great cavern, and there were two entrances. One was an entrance from the side, uh, which they could walk into, which they could seal, which they had sealed, and then an entrance from the top, that dropped down into which they could lower man, see? And they found various types of these the archaeologists have, and this is probably was a subterranean cavern. Perhaps, as one archaeologist says, with a wall in between. 
which they could open and shut the door of it. And they would put the lions in one, and then they'd open the door and let them go to another, and the, the hole from the top would drop into either one. And they'd let the lions go into another, clean it, get out, let the lion had a, an entrance from the side, but also had a... But when they got him out, how'd they get him out? Well, how does it say? You read the story? They brought him out through the top. And when they took the plotters and threw them in, they didn't take them in the side. They probably dropped them down. So Daniel's put into the, into the lion's den, into the, lion, the cavern that kept the lions. So, verse 18, the king went to his palace. Uh, Daniel went down the lion's den, and he went to sleep. He had a clear conscience. The king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and he didn't have any sleep. The king was up in, uh, in, on his bed in uh, uh, the finest affair, and he couldn't sleep. And old Daniel there down with the lions, he's sleeping. The only thing, the Lord closed his mouth so he wouldn't bite him and uh, didn't let their claws hurt him and kind of closed their noses so they wouldn't snore. See? <laughs> and they just slept, old Daniel slept real well. Boy, I'd like to have this kind of a sleep. So uh, verse 18 king went to the palace, passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and sleep went from him. Verse 19, then the king arose very early, 4.30, 5 in the morning, and went immediately in haste to the den of lions. <clears throat> when he came to the den, cried with a lamentable voice, hoping against hope he'd be alive, but suspecting he might be dead. Cried with a lamentable voice, Daniel, Daniel. The king spoke and said to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? And to his surprise, Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. See, he didn't forget to drop his courtesy. <laughs> he dressed the king as he'd been dressed him all along. O oh, king, live forever. My God has sent his angel, has shut the lions' mouths, and of course tamed them. Uh, not only their mouths, but tamed them, that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him, innocence was found in me. And also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. I've done nothing against thee. I have a clear record before two people. Who are they in verse? Before God and before man in verse 22. I'm innocent before God, and I've done no injury to you before God and man. Then was the king exceeding glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, lifted up through that hole in the top of the, of the cavern. No man of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. Does that remind us of something that's already taken place? It does, doesn't it? The fiery furnace. When they came out of the furnace, no smoke, no smell of smoke, their hair not singed, their clothes didn't even smell of smoke. But the men that threw him in got killed. So here in the same story, Daniel's untouched, unhurt. Verse 24, the men that threw him in, that plotted, the king commanded and brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the dens of lions, them, their children, and their wives, those that plotted. Now, Daniel did not command this. This was the thing that Persian kings did. When they found plotters, they threw the whole family in. He kind of figured... That if a man did it, his kids got hold of the same 
idea, so they threw the whole family in. And the lions had the master then. By this time, they were hungry, see. They hadn't had a chance to eat Daniel, so they were hungry now. So before they got to the ground, they didn't get the ground. I'll tell you, when I used to tell this story to my boys, especially David, they always liked, I don't know why, but they liked this part of the story because they could visualize it, you know. They threw them on in. Before they hit the ground, they were in their mouths. These lions were, were, uh, were hungry. So before they hit the ground, they had already gotten them and broken them in pieces. Retributive justice. Now, Daniel didn't ask for that, but there was retributive justice. Then King Darius wrote until he made his decree, all people, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. The king issued that degree and sent it out to all the provinces, that is, Darius did, of Babylon, and vindicated Daniel. Now, um, and, and gave his own witness to God uh, on this thing. I always have, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. I always have um, a matter of... Uh, I look with a measure of uh, hesitancy on these decrees of emperors to force people to worship God. Nebuchadnezzar did it. It didn't do much. Darius did it. It didn't do much to force people to worship God. Constantine did it. Most of the, a lot of the things that we find today in our civil and religious life go back to the days of Constantine. Exemption of clergy from military service. Tax exemption granted to churches. A lot of these things go back to the days of Constantine. Constantine, you remember, was uh, involved in, what was it, the Battle of Milvian Bridge? Saw that sign in heaven, declared that God gave him a victory. He would come out on the side of God, so to speak, and issued the decree of the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D., which gave legal standing to Christianity. That is, no longer could it be open game to the pagans inside the emperor. Well, it wasn't long before that that uh, Constantine, 325 A.D., uh, paid his own soldiers a, a certain amount of money. Each one of them got baptized as a Christian. He wanted to Christianize his uh, empire. And Constantine's responsible for welding, bringing in. He wasn't converted himself. Matter of fact, he didn't get baptized till the last year of his life. He's kind of like a lot of people, you know, you'll be a Christian? Yeah, but let me sow my wild oats first. Give me a little more time. Constantine said, I'll be baptized, but wait, wait, wait. He got baptized the last year of his life. But he brought in a lot of the pagan practices uh, into Christianity. And Christianity became eventually a favored religion. Became 380, 381 became the state religion. And... Uh, then began to persecute those within uh, uh, the empire that worshipped other than the way the empire dictated. And uh, that's why our founding fathers, such as Thomas Jefferson, had a, um, uh, had a suspicion of an established religion. Thomas Jefferson was asked one time, what do you think the greatest contribution you made, uh, ha made to... Uh, 
American life and history. Well, he thought, and he said, there probably, I perhaps have made three contributions. One is the founding University of Virginia. One is my part in the Declaration of Independence. But he said if I had, uh, the third was the disestablishment of religion in America. And he said if I had my choice, I'd probably select that third one, the disestablishment of religion in America. Now, when we say the disestablishment of religion in America, we mean the separation of state and denominations. Uh, some of our groups in America think that means the separation of the state and God. The founding fathers were not against the separation of the state and God. The separation of the state and any one particular denomination of religion. That is, the state ought not to support by paying the salaries of the preachers, by paying their salaries in university positions, the state ought not to support any one religion above another. And this has a long history. Back to Constantine, back to Darius. And I have my suspicions about that sort of approach. Verse 28. So Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. They were contemporaries. All right, now let's close out. I would like to draw a couple of lessons. Here's a great story. A man that uh, has, a, um, has a vivid imagination can read and, and appreciate this story. If a man doesn't have an imagination, he's not going to get much out of it. Now, Daniel chapter 6 concludes the historical section of our book. I wonder if you look here. You remember on the first day that we, well, no, it wasn't the first day. It was the third day. On the third day, we put a chart on the board, and I, the next week, mimeographed that. Do you remember that? you remember that? And in that chart, we made two major divisions in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 to 6, we called historical. And we put all the events, chapter 1, 2, what's chapter 1? Let's see if we can think to it. Chapter 1 is the introduction, when Daniel is tested about his his uh, willingness to compromise his conviction. Daniel chapter 2 is the story of that great image. Daniel chapter 3 is the refusal of the, of the three Hebrew children to bow down to the image, and they were thrown in the furnace of fire. Daniel chapter 4 is the um, judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar and his seven-year period of insanity. Daniel chapter 5 is the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Paul the Belshazzar in the Battle of the Lowland Empire. And Daniel chapter 6 is the story of the Daniel and the lion's den. Now, why did God put this story here? Why did the Lord place Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6, right before Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and Daniel 10 to 12? Four prophecies. Daniel 7, Daniel 7 through 12 is prophecy. And there are four prophecies. Daniel 7 is a prophecy in itself. Daniel 8 is a prophecy in itself. Daniel 9 is a prophecy in itself. Daniel 10 to 12 is a prophecy in itself. Now, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 relate to Gentile nations. However, in Daniel, the only difference is that in Daniel chapter 2, there's nothing about Israel. But in Daniel chapter 7, Israel is brought in. So Daniel 7 relates to 
the Gentile nations and their relationship to Israel. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, both relate to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> the period of the Medo-Persian Empire and the period of the Greco-Alexandrian Empire. Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, we have the great prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And then in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12, we have one prophecy. And all of this, all these chapters, are going to tell us about Israel. Israel in good times? No. Israel in bad times. Daniel 8, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Daniel chapter 7, what is the, that king who's described under the nomenclature of the little horn. What is he going to do with the children of Israel? He's going to persecute them. Daniel chapter 8, what's going to happen to Israel? Persecuted. Daniel chapter 9, the, the, um, the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. Daniel 9, 26. He's going to destroy your city, Jerusalem. Daniel 10, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, Israel is persecuted. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Look at it. Daniel 12, 1. Daniel chapter 11. Uh, well, we're not going to get Daniel 11. That'd be too hard. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Daniel 12, 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince. Michael's the angel. That time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, who stands for the children of thy people. Thy people is Israel. And Michael apparently is associated with the, uh, you know, God uses different means of providence. One means of providence is the use of angels. Hebrews 1, 14, there are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. So Michael is associated with the nation of Israel. That time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who stands for the children of thy people. And here's a picture of the tribulation. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that very same time. Now Jesus spoke about this. The greatest period of persecution for Israel in the land in all history is going to be this period here, see. Now, when you look here, Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all picture Israel, Israel in uh, suffering, in persecution, and so on down the line. So how does Daniel 6 relate to that? Well, Daniel 6 is a picture of how God is able to deliver his children in the severest of adversity. Daniel is a real man. See, now you understand what I'm saying here. Daniel is a real man, but he's also a type of Israel. And right before God gives Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, which pictures Israel in persecution, in its extremity, in situations that are intolerable, in which they cannot save themselves, God gives them a picture of how he was able to save a man 
in the direst of circumstances when everybody else had given up hope, see? So Daniel in the lion's den is typical of Israel in persecution. Is God able to deliver Daniel? Was he? Is God able to deliver Israel? Yes, see? And that's why Daniel 6 is placed at the beginning of this prophetic section. Now, let's close by asking ourselves what lessons can we learn here? Well, let me suggest three lessons if you'd like to write them down. Three lessons. Three lessons. I learned three lessons. And now you might multiply these by four and get 12. But I learned three lessons. First lesson I learned is a lesson on something that we all face. It's spelled D-I-L-E-M-M-A. Dilemma. Daniel faced a dilemma. You face it at your work. See. Now, we don't face it so much here at Mid-South Bible College because everybody's a Christian. But I've worked, worked all my way through seminary, worked with ungodly men, with pagan men, and I know the dilemma that you face at work. See. Principle or expedience. Shall I stand for the Lord and fly my colors, whatever it may cost me, the disfavor and the abuse that I'm going to have to suffer from my fellow laborers. Am I going to stand on principle or expedient? How easy it would have been, would it not? How easy it would have been for Daniel to close the door, uh, the window, and then they never found it, or to slip down the basement and never found it, or instead of putting the Bible out on the desk where they could see, you see, slip it in the drawer where they can't see. Now, Daniel, uh, uh, Daniel avoided two extremes. He avoided ostentation, and that doesn't look good. But he also avoided being a secret believer, and he's put in a dilemma. Shall I obey God, or shall I obey man? Shall I fly my colors, or shall I trim my colors? And everybody here is going to have to face that dilemma. See, God is going to see to it that we're going to get in monks of pagans at work, business, school, wherever it might be. We're going to get some circumstances where we're going to be put on the griddle, put to the test. Am I going to fly my colors for Jesus Christ in the course of my business or not? Daniel had to face it. Peter had to face it. He failed the first time, didn't he? little girl came up. You're one of his. Oh, no. Uh, yes, you are. I can tell you got that southern dialect. Well, he had a northern dialect, Galilean. Oh, no. She came up again, little, little waitress, little waitress, down from the steak and egg place, see, little waitress, said to him, yeah, I know you are. And old Peter was so scared, he cussed, he cussed in order to deny it. No, I'm not. And then he knew he failed, went out, went out, and Jesus saw him, went out and wept bitterly. Later on, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, he learned his lesson. He flew his colors. He said, you judge. Stop preaching. He said, you judge whether it's right to obey God or man. Uh, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Acts 4.20. Used to be up in Union City. I got preached to the group about 22 years ago called the Acts 420 Club in Union City. Acts 420 Club. 
We cannot help but speak. We cannot speak but speak the things we've seen and heard. Dilemma. Second lesson I learned is the lesson on God's ability. Is God able? Yes, God is able. God is able. Is your God able, Daniel, to deliver you? Yes, the old hymn. You remember we have a little chorus. God is able to deliver thee. God is able. You ever sung that? God is able to deliver. You haven't. Okay. Well, you ought to get it sometime. Is God able? May I suggest something? You've got a Cruden's Concordance. How many of you got a Concordance? Let's see. All right. Do that. That's fine. Use it. See, use it. I got a Cruden's. I got two Cruden's Concordances. That's the simplest one. You know the old uh, saying, they got three major ones, young, strong, and crude. And the old saying is, the strong is for the strong, young is for the young, and crudence is for the, well, you know. <laughs> so that's why I got two of them. Crudence is for the crude. One at home and one at school. Now, sometimes, take that word able. I spoke down at a Baptist church in, in South Haven about three years ago near Christmas time. And they asked me to speak on God's ability. That's kind of, in some respects, hard. So I went through my Cruden's Concordance and looked up all the A-B-L-E, A-B-L-E, A-B-L-E. Found about 10 of them, 11 of them, 12 of them. God is able. God is able. Hebrews 7:25. He's able to keep to the uttermost them that come. God, once he saved a man, will take him all the way to heaven. He's able to keep to the uttermost. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound unto you, that you always, having all sufficiency and all things, may abound unto every good work. God is able. Ephesians chapter 3, 20. Unto him who is able to keep you, uh, unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Jude 24, 25. He is able to to keep you from falling. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, present you faultless before his presence with exceeding great joy. Take a concordance, run them through. It will be a very profitable study. Then the third thing I'd like to hear are three qualities in Daniel's life that stand out in this chapter. Three qualities in Daniel's life. Mention them very briefly. Number one, three qualities in Daniel's life. Number one, faithfulness in his inner life. Faithfulness in his inner life. Now, that's indicated by what circumstances. What did Daniel do? He had praying. How often did he pray? Morning, noon, night. And he wasn't praying while he was driving down the street. He was a busy man. He was a busy man, occupied. He was an administrator in an empire. And yet he found a place to go at his business down in the governor's office or the mayor's office. He found an office that was empty and he was able to get down on his knees three times a day, see? Or now he went home on his lunch hour here to his own lunch place, got down on his knees and prayed to God. And the king's decree didn't change it. Faithfulness in his inner life. Do you think he started that a week before this happened? He'd been doing that since he was... 12, 13, 14 years. And see, this produced. It developed steel, spiritual steel in his life so he could stand for God. Faithfulness. Second thing, integrity. Integrity. 
Couldn't find any fault in Daniel's life. His life was impeccable. Was, you know, I'm not saying he was sinless, but he was a man of integrity. His word was his bond. What he said he'd do. You couldn't find he did his work well. Colossians 3, 17, whatsoever you do, word of deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And third, and finally, steadfastness. And I like that. You know the one great uh, quality that demonstrates that a man is a Christian? Perseverance. If you, John 8, 31, I wonder if you look here, John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. If you persevere in obeying my word, you persevere in my word, then you are my disciples. Steadfastness. What Daniel was at 18, he was at 84. What did we find him doing in 18? Standing for God, praying daily, witnessing for the Lord, what do we find Daniel doing at 84? Praying regularly, taking a stand for God, witnessing for his God. See, perseverance, steadfastness. Here's a man that was involved in the political life of a nation. Here was the man who probably changed the course of Israel and impressed Cyrus with writing out that decree to let the Jews go back home. And he did so because out of his life and in his life, it was faithfulness. Now, next week we're going to take up Daniel.